I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Maybe you got thrown off a little bit earlier when we had a different scripture reading, and you're thinking, wait a second, are we finally out of John? The answer is no, we are not. Uh, we still got several weeks left in that, but uh, we do want to make sure we are reading scripture uh, regularly throughout our service, and not just the scripture that we uh, are considering in the sermon that morning, so uh, we're glad to be able to do that. Also, uh, you, you know, Aaron mentioned um, it, it's very deeply, it's a very deeply held conviction for both Aaron and myself that the most important instrument, the most important sound on a Sunday morning is the voice of the congregation. That when we sing, the most important sound that we hear and that we have is the voice of the congregation as we sing. And so we want to do things to help leverage us in that way. And it's a joy to be able to hear one another sing as we gather together like this this morning. You know, Aaron mentioned it, that the New Testament actually has uh, two, especially two direct commands to sing when you gather together for worship. And, uh, and one of them says, sing to the Lord. The other one says, sing to one another. So when we're commanded to sing on a Sunday morning, there's two focuses in view. One is to the Lord, one is to each other. One of the ways we've said it around here is that we remember and we remind when we sing. We remember what Christ has done for us and we remind one another of the words that we sing and that we believe this to be true. Many have said it, Aaron and I would agree to it, that before I ever get up here on a Sunday morning, the gospel should have already been proclaimed and that happens through song. We just sang through the gospel, and now we will see the good news of Christ and what he says to us in his word. John chapter 15, our scripture reading today is John chapter 15, verse 18, through John chapter 16, verse 15. But we're actually going to back up a little bit and uh, jump back to John chapter 15, verse 12. Sometimes it's helpful to give us a running start into our passage because all of this happens in context. This is not an isolated account. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples on this night before he is going to be crucified. So let's back up to John chapter 15, verse 12, and begin reading there. Jesus speaking to his disciples. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, 
whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we pray that your spirit would do exactly this in our hearts this morning, that he would guide us into the truth of your word, and that he would cause us to see, savor, and glorify Christ as our Lord. May Jesus be lifted up in our hearts and in our church this morning through your word, by the power of your spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, and for Christ's glory, amen. So have you ever looked at someone and thought, I wonder what it would be like to be friends with them? I wonder what it would be like to actually get to know them in person. You know, you kind of see what they look like on the, the, the outward appearance, but I wonder what it would be like to actually know them. So you think about that sports star uh, that you, you watch on TV, you, you idolize, you celebrate, and you say, I wonder what it would be like to be in their circle of friends. Or maybe it's that YouTuber, YouTuber that TikTok influencer, you think, man, I wonder what it would be like to actually get to know them in real life. Maybe it's that person at school that you say, you know what, I, I don't really know them, never really talked to them, but it seems like they'd be a cool person to be around. We often wonder, I wonder what it would be like to be friends with them. Well, we're going to see today what it's like to be a friend of Jesus. He's told us, you're my friends. What does friendship with Jesus look like? And let me say up front that being a friend of Jesus is hard and is difficult. But being a friend of Jesus is worth it. And he has not left you alone to navigate the world by yourself. That's the point of our text this morning. Being friends with Jesus is not easy, but it is worth it. And you are not alone in navigating this. Remember, all this is in the context of Jesus calling his disciples friends. No longer do I call you servants, he told them. I have called you friends. Every single person who follows Jesus is his friend. That includes you and me today. If we're believers in Jesus, we are his friends. 
Pastor Dan preached on this text last week, so I'm not going to re-preach his sermon this morning. You can go listen to that online. It's a terrific message to listen to about being friends with Jesus and abiding in his love. But remember what we saw last week, that Jesus says greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says then that the greatest love you can imagine is friendship love. It's not the way we tend to think about it. We, we tend to idolize romantic love, and certainly there's, we're celebrating, and there should be the closest friendship that happens in those settings. But Jesus says, listen, greater love has nothing than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Sacrificial, selfless friendship is the pinnacle of love in Jesus' mind. He says, that's how I love you, my friends, by giving up my life for you. There's a funny thing that happens about friendship, that Though we're called to love everyone, here's the reality. Um, sometimes being great friends with this person means you will not be great friends with this person because you're friends with them, right? Let me give you an extreme example, but hopefully the one that makes the point clear. So if you say, you know what? I really love my wife. She's my best friend. Listen, okay, that's a really good thing, a really wonderful thing. That should be the case. Um, and then you learn that she was abused and mistreated. For you to turn around and be best friends with her abuser, she would say, do you really love me? Well, no, we're not called to hate anyone or harbor bitterness toward anyone, but we do recognize that there are some times where to be friends with this person means you're not gonna be that great friends with this person. And Jesus says to us in this text, if you are friends with me, you will not be friends with the world. And if you are friends with the world, you are not friends with me. The question before us is, are you friends with Jesus or friends with the world? Jesus says to his disciples, you are my friends. And then he tells them, what does friendship with Jesus look like? Well, the first thing that we see in our text is that a friend of Jesus will be hated by the world. Friendship with Jesus brings hatred from the world. Jesus does not want his friends to be surprised by what being his friend actually entails. He says, it will be difficult. You will be hated because you're my friend. This is what he says, verse 18 of chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep Yours. Jesus says to his friends, he looks at them and says, you're my friends, now let me tell you, the world's gonna hate you because of that. You're gonna face difficulty and opposition and rejection and persecution because you're my friend. Now, we Western Christians don't really like this that much, and so we think Jesus just needs to take some PR lessons. The message, join me and you will be hated, is not exactly the most compelling message to go forth. That book probably is not becoming a bestseller, certainly not in competition with your best life now. That speech probably is not winning many political elections on the campaign trail. And yet there is something compelling about the honesty of Jesus in these words. Because we're all used to people in power over-promising and under-delivering. We're used to promises of, hey, follow me and your life's gonna be perfect and amazing and wonderful and everything's gonna do great for you. You know, no one can actually deliver on that. Jesus does not want us to be deceived. He looks at his disciples and says, listen, I'm gonna be straight with you guys. I'm, gonna be, I'm not gonna deceive you. If you are my friends, it will be very difficult. You will be hated. And many of you will be killed. 
He doesn't want them to be deceived on the cost of following him and being his friend. And what happens is when we read these words, they sound incredibly discouraging, but they're actually meant as words of comfort from Jesus to his disciples. What happens is when, when, when people know, when, when Christians know the hatred of the world, they know, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm not surprised by this. I know, I'm experiencing it right now. When they know the hatred of the world and they hear these words of Jesus, these words are incredible comfort. When Christians who are not used to hatred and not used to opposition hear these words, they sound discouraging. But Jesus is saying these things to disciples who knew, listen, we know we're opposed. And Christians throughout the years and in our world today, still, by and large, Christians have been opposed and hated and persecuted, and these words ring forth as a shining word of comfort from Christ to them in the moment. So how do these words bring hope and comfort? There are at least five ways in our text that these words bring comfort. The first way these words bring comfort is that Jesus says, listen, the world hated Jesus first. These words bring comfort because the world hated Jesus first. If the world hates you, he says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He looks at his disciples and says, hey, guess what? You're just like me. You're in good company, friends. You're just following me. So what if the world hates you? They hate me. Maybe we haven't grasped enough that the world did hate Jesus. We think, oh yeah, sure, Jesus was a good guy, did a lot of wonderful things, awesome guy, hey, everyone else loved him. <laughs> no, they hated him. Just hours after saying these things, he would be nailed upon a cross and his followers would be scattered and there would be only a select few still with him, the rest rejecting him and hating him. Jesus was hated by the world. He says, listen, my friends, if you are hated, you're in good company. You think about what it's like to make a decision that you know is going to be unpopular. And then you think, well, you know what? So-and-so agrees with me and I respect them. So at least I'm not totally alone. Listen, if I'm, if I'm crazy, at least they're crazy with me. Jesus says, listen, listen, if they hate you, they hated me first. You're in good company, my friends. We view these statements as sobering, but really the normative experience of Christians throughout the ages and in our world today is to know beyond any doubt that they are hated, that they are outcasts of society, that they are weird and on the fringes of their culture. And Jesus says, listen, that's where I was too. You're in good company, my friends. The first word of comfort is that the world hated Jesus first. The second is that Jesus loved you first. The world hated Jesus first, but Jesus loved you first, my friends. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. The reason for the hatred is because Jesus has chosen us in love. Because we are no longer of the world, we belong to him. This world is no longer our home because we belong to Christ. Jesus endured the hatred of the world, and the reason why was out of love for us. The book of Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. So what was the joy? It was the joy of seeing his people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation redeemed, brought to himself through the blood of the lamb. Jesus went to the cross with purpose. He endured the world's scorn and shame for our redemption, that we were the ones who hated him, we were the ones rebelling, and we belonged to the world. We did everything the world did. We hated Jesus. We rebelled against him. We sinned against him. But Jesus, I chose you out of the world. I shed my blood for you to bring you to myself. You no longer belong to the world. You belong to me. He's changed our permanent address. We no longer are citizens of the world. We are citizens of heaven. He loved us. He saved us. He changed our standing. 
Just like a bride often will change her name after a wedding, so too has Christ given us a new name and called us Christians. Little Christ, we belong to him, not to the world. We're marked out as his. So, followers of Jesus will be hated by the world because they hated Jesus first. But Jesus loved us first and brought us to himself, and that's why opposition comes. It's the third word of comfort. And it's that hardship shows us that Jesus is first in our hearts. The world hated Jesus first. Jesus loved us first. And hardship shows us whether we love Jesus first or not. What happens is we tend to think the opposite when suffering comes. When suffering and hardships comes in our lives, we begin wondering, does that mean my faith isn't genuine? But Jesus says, you should actually have those questions when life is easy, not when life is hard. When life is easy, and there's no opposition and no, no, no hatred, no persecution. Jesus says, that's when you should be asking, is my faith genuine? Not when you feel the opposition, not when you feel the hardship. When your life is hard for the sake of Christ, it is a clear sign to everyone, including yourself, that you belong to Jesus and he is first in your heart. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In other words, he says, listen, Rather than being concerned when hardship arrives, Christians should be concerned when hardship doesn't arrive. If friendship with the world matters most to you, you will be marked by the same desires and the same actions as the world. You will love what the world loves, do what the world does, talk the way the world talks, treat other people the way the world treats other people. You'll be marked by the earthly desires like Paul lists in Galatians, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Do those actions, do those desires mark your heart? Jesus says, if so, the world loves you because you're just like the world. So if you're not feeling any sort of resistance for your walk with Jesus, you might not be walking as closely with him as you think you are. If you aren't experiencing any hardship for following Jesus, you might not be following the same Jesus you think you are. But when the world hates you, and hates you for Jesus' sake, not just because you're a jerk, but hates you for the sake of Christ, it should be an encouraging sign to Christians that Jesus really is first in our hearts. Because we're different enough to be marked by different passions and different actions. There's a fourth word of comfort, and it's that the world will respond to you the same way they responded to Jesus. They'll respond to you the way they responded to Jesus. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We just saw that. They hated Jesus first. But he continues on. He makes the opposite point. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. So yes, it's true. The world hates Jesus, and so they'll hate you. It's true. The world persecuted Jesus, so they'll persecute you. But Jesus then adds, but if they followed my word, they'll follow yours. If they listened to me, they'll listen to you. If they listened to my word, they'll listen to the words of my disciples and my word going forth. The disciples were heading out into the world of hatred, but there would be people coming to Christ. As the disciples bore witness about this Christ and testified to his word, Jesus says, listen, if they receive me, they will receive your message. So don't be discouraged, church, in going out into a world of hatred as witnesses because Christ has those who are his. And he says, listen, if they kept my word, they'll, keep, they'll listen. Those who hate me will hate you. Those who listen to me, they'll listen to you. They'll hear it. They'll respond. They'll obey. Those who love Jesus will listen. 
those who have been chosen by Jesus will respond. Those who are seeking obedience and righteousness will recognize it in you. There's a final word here, and it's that the world can do nothing to sever your friendship with Christ. These are words of comfort because he makes it clear the world can do nothing to sever your friendship with Jesus. Jesus says in verse 2 of chapter 16, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. We could think of the Apostle Paul as a prime example of that. Went around persecuting Christians thinking he was serving the one true God. But you think about it in their day, to be put out of the synagogue was to be excluded from the place of religious worship, excluded from many of the family and friendship circles that you would cling to, excluded from the place where it was believed God's presence dwelt with his people, driven away from everything you knew, from all the relationships that you held, being an outcast in your society, being excluded from the faith. It was a big deal to be put out of the synagogues. And Jesus says to them throughout the entire upper room discourse, but I haven't left you. Chapter 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Later in chapter 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Chapter 15, verse four, abide in me and I abide in you. He's saying, listen, my friends, I'm not leaving you alone. They might kick you out of the synagogues, but I will be with you always. They might be driven out of everything they've known the entirety of their lives, the spiritual community. They might be driven out of family and friends, but Jesus says, they will never be able to separate you from me. They will never be able to threaten our friendship. Even if we are kicked out of the synagogues and even if they kill us, Nothing, nothing can sever our friendship with Christ. These are immense words of comfort given to us. And Jesus gives them to us for a purpose. He doesn't just give it to us that we, oh, well, the world hates us. Okay, well, he gives it for a specific purpose. A friend of Jesus will be hated by the world, but he says these things so that we know that a friend of Jesus will not fall away. He says these things to us so that we keep abiding in him. Remember, Dan said last week, he taught us much about the need to abide. And Jesus is saying, listen, I know it's not gonna be easy. I know it's gonna be hard to stick with it. But that's the reason I'm telling you these things, my friends, that when the hardship comes, you'll keep abiding. That when the persecution comes, you'll stick with me and you will not fall away. Verse four of chapter 16, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I don't want you to be surprised when it arrives. I'm telling you now so you know it then so that then you can stand firm and abide. Verse one of chapter 16, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. That's the purpose why Jesus is saying this. I'm telling you all these things to keep you from falling away. Abide with me even when the hardship comes. Jesus knows what it is like to walk the road of suffering and persecution and hatred. But he also knows what it's like to remain steadfast in the midst of it. He tells us these words to keep us from falling away and so that we can remember he told us to expect it. It's an important word for some of you because some of you were actually sold a lie upon coming to faith in Jesus. You were told that if you came to Jesus, you would get all these blessings and wealth and health and that your life would be easy and carefree and everything would be wonderful for you. And that lasted all of 
two minutes, maybe, before you realize, you know what, life's still hard. Life's still difficult. And now these messages are ringing around in your head that, hey, if you just come to Jesus, he'll make everything better. And you say, well, it's not better, and so maybe I'm not really following Jesus right. Maybe this thing's not working for me. Maybe I should just fall away. You begin wondering if Jesus is really worth it. You begin wondering if you're doing something wrong or if the person who told you these things was lying to you. You come to church and every song is upbeat and happy, and so you're thinking, well, I must be failing at this Christian thing because I don't feel that right now. You look around the workplace and you say, you know what, those people who profess faith in Jesus and those people who don't pretend to follow Jesus look exactly the same in how they live. Why am I bothering at all? In those moments, Jesus wants you to know, I told you it would be this way. I promised you life would not be easy. But he promised us it would be worth it. John Rowe has often reminded me that we are selective about the promises of Jesus we cling to. We cling to some and like, oh, this is wonderful. We like this one. But we don't really consider that this also is a promise. The promise of Jesus, you're going to be hated. We don't like that one as much. We don't stick that one up on our walls. But we need to say, Jesus promised it, so we should expect it. Therefore, when it happens, we don't fall away. We keep going because Jesus told us it would just be like this. In the midst of it, Jesus says, keep abiding in me. He says, friends, following me is hard. And I'm not going to stand up here today and tell you it's not difficult. Following Jesus will come at cost, great cost to your reputation and your popularity, at cost of your friendships and your relationships, at cost to your influence and your status in the culture. But it's all worth it because we know Jesus. He's, he's not out to rob us of joy. He's out to give it to us. And Jesus knows that the, the world can never give us joy like Jesus can. He said this to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is not out to rob us of joy. He knows he can give it to us in deeper ways than the world ever could. The way of the world makes life easier for a moment at the cost of joy forever. The way of Jesus means more hardships and sufferings now for a moment, but an eternity of complete, unhindered, enraptured joy in the most delightful being in the universe, never to end. Every unmet longing, every unjust suffering, every lonely tear, every lost relationship, every stressor and strain will be met and repaid 10,000-fold by Christ in glory. He has placed his joy in us, and he promises there will be a fullness of joy. So keep going. Hold fast. Abide in Christ. It's hard, but it's worth it. A friend of Jesus is hated by the world, and a friend of Jesus will not fall away. This is the reason why he's telling us these things. And so it would be appropriate for us to stop and say, okay, then what is, how does that apply then to us where we stand? And let me apply this to a few different groups of people. The charge to hold fast. First, let me talk to those in here who are kids, teenagers, young adults. I'll let you define what young adult is and if you fit the bill. You are going to face particular pressures in the coming years, and you do face today on this very front. 
And you are going to have to take seriously whether you really believe Jesus is who he says he is, whether you really believe that his way is better, and whether you really believe it enough to endure the hatred and opposition of the world. You're going to have to figure those things out. Because your peers already think that you're crazy for believing that marriage should be only between one man and one woman for life. To believe that homosexuality is a sin, that divorce is a sin, and that so-called gay marriage is not actually marriage in the first place will quickly make you enemies with the world. To believe that life begins at conception and that a woman's right to choose does not extend to the taking of another human life will make you hated. Not only that, but you will be considered weird by your friends and you will feel alienated from them. When in college and you don't go out to all those parties and you refuse to drink until you're of legal age, you will be thought a killjoy and be excluded from the social gatherings. When all of your friends are boasting about how they look at porn and sleep around with other people, you say, I'm waiting until marriage, you'll be mocked and you'll be misunderstood. When your friends spend all their time talking about the latest gossip and envying what other people have and you refuse to participate, you'll be seen as being better than them and rejected for it. You need to be prepared to live a life that is radically different, that will come at great social cost and be thought weird by your peers. Sometimes older people will dismiss this and dismiss your sin and say, you know what, well, kids are gonna be kids. I remember what I did in college. Those statements are not helpful and they do not have your best interest in mind when they say those things. It's true, forgiveness is found for any dumb things we do and any sinful things we do, but disobedience should never be normalized. Kids will be kids, maybe, but Christians will be Christians, guaranteed. Your generations will face this pressure in greater ways than many others in our church. And you have the privilege and responsibility of leading the way and showing us what faithfulness looks like amidst a world opposed to Christianity. You will see other people your age, you have seen other people your age falling away from the faith because the cost is too great, but you can hold fast to Jesus and show us there is a better way and he's worth it. It will not be easy and it will not be without cost. That's what Jesus says here. And you face these decisions on a daily basis. Just this week, I was talking with a young adult from our church, a young guy from our church, and we we got into a conversation and he's processing, trying to figure out um, what he should do in the workplace. He's having to make decisions every day in the, and on a regular basis in the workplace about what he should and shouldn't do as it pertains to all these LGBTQ plus promotions in the office and projects that he's working on. And he's figuring out, what do I do day by day? You will face difficulty and challenge. But Jesus told us these things to strengthen us, to keep us from falling away. He says, listen, expect that it's coming. Expect that it will happen and stand firm. You may be rejected and feel alone, but Jesus is with you. Jesus is pleased with you. And Jesus says, you're my friend. Keep abiding in him. Second group of people, parents, right, parents. You need to realize that raising your kids to be friends with the world is raising them to be enemies with Jesus. And raising your kids to be friends with Jesus means you're raising them to be hated by the world. Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin wrote an excellent book on family discipleship. We've used it around here in many settings. In the book, they write this, give this advice to parents. Let this sink in. Parents, if God graciously saves your child, many in the culture will be repulsed by your child. At the very least, discipled kids will be considered weird. Your son or daughter's faith will not impress the world. Your children will be hated because of who your God is and what he's like. We need to raise up a generation who is ready to be distinctly different from their peers, righteously abnormal. In a lot of ways, that's the opposite of our natural inclination in how to raise our children. Raising kids who are ready to be hated means raising kids who unashamedly love God, even in the face of loathing and alienation. 
regardless if the insults of the world are naive or legitimate. We pray your children will be ready to stand firm in the midst of a world that despises them. You will need to put in substantial effort to nurture kids who are ready for that. We are raising kids who will hopefully pursue generosity over comfort, righteousness over acceptance, and selflessness over self-esteem for Christ's sake. In an interview promoting the book, Chandler went on, he said, for many parents, the highest goal that they have for their children is that it would fit in and be popular and be liked. And he says, if, you, if that's your highest goal for your kids, they're not gonna be friends with Jesus. Raise them to be friends with Jesus and you are raising them to be outcasts, considered weird by the world, but you tell them it's worth it. And as a side note, this is why we need the church. Because everywhere else in society, it feels weird to actually take Christianity seriously. We need a community where we can come and say, it's actually not weird to take righteousness seriously. It's not weird to be pursuing holiness. This is actually, this is my brothers and sisters who are doing the exact same thing. We need one another to strengthen us in this task to say, listen, it's not that strange to say what Jesus says actually matters. Jesus says, your kids, if they follow him, will be weird, hated, and outcast from the world around them. And that is not a flaw. It's the way he said it would happen. And he says it's worth it. So now third, let me apply it to, to every Christian. And it was a follower of Jesus, because this is a call to all of us to say, how much do we value fitting in and being liked by the world? How important is that to us? How high on the priority list would that be in our lives? How much are we living in ways just like the world? Some Christians today spend their time surprised by and grumbling about how quickly things have changed in our country as if we almost believed America was supposed to be exempt from this portion of scripture. But it's interesting, we do see shifts that have happened. The reason for rejecting Christianity has changed. It once was, and many of you know this well, it once was that Christians were thought to be too moral. Fundamentalists just taking morality all that seriously, that has completely flipped. Christians today are not considered too moral, we are considered not moral enough. Too immoral to believe what we do about gender and sexuality and abortion has changed, and with it has come pushback from the world that says you're actually immoral, intolerant, hateful. Christian, are you willing to be weird for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to be misunderstood for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to be mistreated for the sake of Christ? Jesus says, if you're friends with me, you'll be at odds with the world. That's exactly what happened to him. And we must not think that we're more capable of navigating the world than Jesus was. Followers of Jesus are not going to be more liked by the world than Jesus was. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. Sometimes, how often do we think, you know what? I could navigate this life thing better than Jesus did. He says, no, 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 a servant's not greater than his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you. Now, what he doesn't mean, let's be clear. What he doesn't mean is just go be a jerk. You cannot be an idiot and then be a jerk to other people and cry, oh, look how I'm being persecuted. That's not what he has in mind. There are plenty of reasons why Christians are hated, not for Jesus' sake, but for political reasons or stupidity or whatever else it might be. But for gospel reasons, when we stand firm on the message of Jesus and we are hated, we say, that's what Jesus told us to expect. So the question is, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? And this is where it's so helpful to see the context of what's happening here. So back up to verse 17 of chapter 15. Jesus, there's no break in the the action here. It's not like, oh, hey, come back next week and I'll give you the next part. This is all just one conversation. So chapter 15, verse 17, these things I command to you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before I hated you. The hatred of the world is set in contrast to the love of the church. 
that when the world hates, the church loves. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He says, amidst the world's hatred, that Christians love one another. The world reacts with hate, the church responds with love. The world reacts with hostility, the church responds with grace. It matters, Christians, how we respond to the hatred of the world. We are to respond like Jesus. He didn't return anger with anger or hatred with hatred or violence with violence. He responded with love. Even the cross cried out, Father, forgive them. He was driven by love to the cross for his friends. Love for you and me, for his church. Before we were ever friends with Jesus, going along with the way of the world, he loved us and brought us to himself. And so we too, when we experience hatred and opposition and pushback, we respond with love. It's a high calling and it's a tough task. Abiding in Christ amidst the hatred of the world is not easy. And this is why Jesus says, I haven't left you alone to navigate it by yourself or in your own strength. Because a friend of Jesus is given the Holy Spirit. It's a glorious promise weaved throughout our text that we see that Jesus promises, listen, yes, it's gonna be hard. The world's gonna hate you. Keep going, keep abiding in me. You say, how can I do that? He says, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. That's how. Sometimes you wonder, well, I don't know how we're gonna be able to navigate this world. I don't know how the next generation's gonna be able to navigate this world. You know, and, and let me tell you how, friends, it's the Holy Spirit who lives within us. If the next generation has the Holy Spirit living within them, they can follow Jesus just like he says they can. So too can you and I. Jesus says, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending my spirit. The helper will come to you. Verse 26, chapter 15. So he's talking about the hatred of the world. But when the helper comes, in other words, there's a contrast. The world's gonna hate you, but when the helper comes, here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna be at work in you, and he's gonna strengthen you to stand firm. In fact, Jesus says, it's actually better that I leave and he come. Chapter 16, verse six, he says this. Because I've said these things to you, that I'm going away, sorrow has filled your heart. And you say, yep, that's pretty obvious. Sorrow has filled, Jesus says, I'm leaving. The world's gonna hate you. You'd expect them to be sorrowful. Here's what he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, it's not saying that Jesus and the Holy Spirit just can't be in the same place at the same time. That's not what it's saying. Jesus, if I go, if I go to the cross, if I go to pave the way of salvation, if I go to choose you and redeem you at the cross with my blood, my spirit will come to you and live within you. If I go to accomplish my work, my spirit will come and live within you. It's better for you that I leave. How many times have you thought, you know what, if Jesus were just sitting right here next to me, everything would be a lot better. Everything would be a lot easier. There's some truth to that. It's a good longing. We all desire to see Christ face to face. That's a good longing, and it will be a longing that is satisfied and met one day. But here's the thing. You would not have any more strength or power or wisdom if he were sitting right next to you than you do right now because his Holy Spirit is in you. And Jesus says, it's actually better for you that I leave. One person used the illustration of a political candidate who wins office on the night of the election night, as the celebration party happens, the person gets up in front of the crowd of supporters and looks around and says, you know what, this is actually pretty wonderful. I like it here. I'm not gonna go to Washington after all. I'm just gonna stay right here. Everyone in the room would say, no, no, you've gotta go to Washington. That's the whole point. And Jesus says, listen, if you understood why I came, if you understood the purpose for why I'm coming, you would say, of course you gotta go. Of course you gotta go to the cross. Of course you gotta rise from the dead. Of course you gotta go to the Father and send the Spirit. That's the whole point. He says, I'm gonna send you my Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. 
in the upper room, Jesus is teaching his disciples about the Trinity. He thinks, you know what? You know what they need to know? The night before I'm going to be killed, the night before everything is going to be turned upside down, they need to know about the Trinity. So he begins teaching them about the Holy Spirit. Christians worship one God who eternally exists in three persons. The Spirit is truly, fully God. He is a person. He's referred to in the text using these personal pronouns, him. Jesus even is bending some of the rules of Greek grammar to make it clear the Holy Spirit is not an it, it's a he. The Holy Spirit is not like the force in Star Wars, some cosmic energy field just kind of permeating everything. No, the Holy Spirit is a person whom we can know and be known by. He indwells us. And Jesus says, you want to know my Holy Spirit? Let me tell you what he does. So Jesus gives three promises of what the Spirit does. First, he convicts. Jesus says in verse 8 of chapter 16, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. There's a lot we could say about those verses. Let me just, here's the main point. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, meaning he is the one at work in bringing people to faith. Not a single person, Old Testament or New Testament, has ever come to faith apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. To open eyes that were once blind and to awaken hearts that were once dead. The world might hate Christ, it's true, but the same, but some from the world will be saved as the Holy Spirit goes forth. As he sheds light on sin, convicts people of the rebellion and of the coming judgment. And so we can trust him to do his work, it's not our work. We bear witness about Christ and the Holy Spirit bears witness about Christ as well. Jesus says this, verse 26 of chapter 15. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. Do you see this? Church, the reason we have confidence in going and bearing witness to a hostile world, to a world full of hatred, the reason we have confidence in bearing witness as Christians amidst the world is that the Holy Spirit is also bearing witness. He will bear witness about me. So you, church, go and bear witness about me. Why? Because it's the Spirit who's going to do the work. He's going to convict the world. You and I can't. He will. And so we go into the world that's opposed to Jesus, and we trust the Holy Spirit will be at work bringing some to faith because Christ died to guarantee it. The Spirit convicts. He also declares truth. Back to chapter 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus sent the Spirit to empower our witness and to guide us in the darkness. He leads believers deeper into truth, into knowing and applying the word of God. So Paul gets out in Galatians. He says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then he lists those works of the flesh we saw earlier. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we are led by the Spirit, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. His work is to convict the world of sin and to lead believers into knowing and living out the truth that God sets forth in his word. And what these truths highlight is that the power to live in a way different from the world does not depend on you and me. It depends upon him. 
He is the one who convicts the world. When we were dead in our sins, following the way of the world, the Spirit convicted us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And now, as regenerated believers, it is the Spirit who is at work in us, making us more like Jesus. Teaches us in accordance with his word and applies it, shapes our lives and our actions and our desires to actually look like it. Let me say this as clearly as I can. Christians, if you are not in love with the world, it is because of the Holy Spirit within you. He's convicted you, declared truth, and applied it to your life. And finally, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit glorifies me. The Spirit convicts of sin, declares truth, and glorifies Christ. This is his most significant work. Verse 14 of chapter 16, Jesus says, he will glorify me. The Holy Spirit is truly, fully God and is worthy of all worship. And we must be careful that we do not ignore the Spirit as if he did not exist or quench him in any way. But the the more Spirit-led and Spirit-filled a church is, the more Christ-centered and Christ-exalting that church will be. The more spirit-led and spirit-filled a Christian is, the more Christ-centered and Christ-exalting that Christian will be. The Holy Spirit does not come to us and point to himself. He comes and points to Christ. And he's within us, living within us, continually, moment by moment, saying to us, look at Jesus. Love Jesus. Enjoy Jesus. Follow Jesus. Obey Jesus. Delight in Jesus. Look at Jesus. That is the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, moment by moment by moment. Jim Packer said it like this. He says, the Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me. It is always, look at him, see his glory. Listen to him, hear his word. Go to him, have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. The Holy Spirit comes and he points us to Jesus. He glorifies Jesus. It's the main work of all that he does. He says, listen, look at Jesus. Rejoice in Jesus, your Savior. If you can exalt Jesus and live for his glory, it's because of the Holy Spirit within you. If we are a church who exalts Jesus and lifts high the name of Christ, it is only because the Spirit is at work in us. In this way, we are markedly different from the world. Those who belong to the world are driven by their own glory, their own good, and their own joy. But Christians come along and say, we're not living for our own glory. I'm not living to make my name great. I'm living to glorify Jesus. I'm living for the good, the gospel. I'm I'm living to make Jesus' name great. As John the Baptist said earlier in John's gospel, he must increase, I must decrease. May Jesus be exalted. The Holy Spirit is at work in us doing exactly that. There is no amount of suffering or hardship or loss that could ever pull us away from him. We belong to Jesus. He is ours and we are his. And so the call for us as a church is to hold fast to Christ. Don't be surprised when hardship comes. Don't be surprised when hatred comes. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be surprised by any of these things. Hold fast to Jesus. He is worth it. We are his. We are his friends. And he's given us his Holy Spirit. He said, I'm not left you alone. I'll come to you. And I will give you my spirit who will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will declare truth to you and lead you into knowing and applying my word. And he will glorify me. Church, may Jesus receive all the glory as we are led by the spirit and testify to a world that Jesus matters more to us than anything else. Matters more to us than comfort, matters more to us than life. Jesus is exalted in our hearts and in our church because the Holy Spirit is at work pointing us to Christ. Father, we thank you for your word and the gift of your spirit. May we not be surprised when hardship comes, when suffering comes, 
but may you strengthen us to remain steadfast in the midst of it, abiding in you. Thank you for your spirit to strengthen us in these things and your word to tell us what to expect. May you, by your spirit, convict us of sin, declare to us the truth of your word, shape us according to your word, and point us to Jesus. That Jesus may be lifted high in our hearts and in our church. That's our prayer, Lord, that he would receive the glory. We ask this in his most precious name.